Hello, and welcome to the Gene Wolfe Literary Podcast. I'm Glenn McDormand. And I'm Brandon Buddha. In this episode, we are starting our coverage of Gene Wolfe's novel, Peace. Uh, this was originally published in 1975. Right. It was published in 1975, but it actually was written before that. It was on the market for several years. So it was completed in 1972 or so. It was, in fact, written before Wolf had completed the second and third novellas that make up the novel The Fifth Head of Cerberus. And so it'll be interesting for us who, who have already covered that stuff and covered many short stories and novellas that actually were written after this book to, to see some of the, the ways that peace is going to intersect with ideas and themes and motifs that we've already encountered in some of these other stories. And I'm going to say right up front that this is one of my favorite Gene Wolfe novels of all time, one of my favorite Gene Wolfe works, one of my favorite novels, maybe I should say, of all time. And so our plan is to really, really savor this book. We're going to spend at least a year on it. We will probably finish it sometime in the first half of 2022, but we don't even make any promises about that <laughs> time frame, I don't think. And we're also going to use a different format than we did when we covered The Fifth Head of Cerberus, which actually means that we've done a different format for each novel so far, of the three that we have covered. And I don't know, maybe that'll be a thing we keep doing every time. But what we are going to do here to cover Peace is break each chapter down into a series of recaps, and then we'll have a single discussion episode for each chapter, which will be the last episode that we do for that chapter. This is actually the same format that we've been using for novellas, really. And we found that that's actually a, a really great way to go through these stories. Obviously, at the end of the novel, when we get to the end of it, uh, we're going to be doing a big recap episode for the whole novel, uh, and, and that'll be a lot of fun. What that also means is that we're not going to be relying, really, me, uh, <laughs> during the <laughs> recap episodes. I'm not going to be relying on any of the scholarship on peace until our final wrap-up episode. We're going to be doing a spoiler-free read-along. We're not going to be looking ahead at like what, what's happening next. I'm doing a critical close reading, as we did with Fifth Head of Cerberus. It's my first time reading the book. As of this episode, I've only read the first chapter. Of course, I am aware of what many people have read to be the general conceit of the book. And I am also aware of some counter readings to that conceit. If you don't know what it is, don't worry about it. Read along with us. We're not going <laughs> to give anything away. <laughs> right. I, I wanted to shelter you from, from that knowledge. But in fact, I'm one of the reasons you have that knowledge. I have read this book before. For, but but only once. But this book, my reading of Peace for the, the first time, and that was like 15 years ago, this is why I started jabbering in your ear about Gene Wolfe at work when we used to work together 15 years ago. So uh, I am guilty of, of, of at least being part of the reason why you're aware of that conceit. Well, before we get going, we should also talk about which edition of this book that we're, we're using, because there are many. And we are using the Orb edition that was published in 2012. This is the one with the Neil Gaiman afterward. Uh, I was interested in reading that Neil Gaiman afterward, but really we're just using this edition because this is the one that if you go on the internet or if you go to the bookstore and ask them to get you a copy of this book, this is the one that you're going to get. So this is the one that is accessible to everybody. Uh, even though I have some other editions of this book that I think are, you know, they've got nicer paper quality, maybe a better cover, that sort of thing. But we're going to use the Orb edition from 2012. Yeah, the original cover has some really kind of dark imagery around the word peace. It's very 70s, very 70s. It's just the word peace written in kind of bubble letters with uh, really like what looks like kind of underground, like goblin-y type creatures uh, surrounding it. The cover that we have is, uh, is a picture of a tree, a foggy sun, and a crow, so... Very, very different imagery to kind of give you a sense of what the story is. But anyway, this episode is our first recap episode. We're only going to be covering pages 9 to 26. So that's 15 pages, the first 15 pages of the story. And as we said, Glenn's doing the recap. I'm doing the commentary. Let's just get right into it. Yeah. All right. So chapter one of Peace. Each of the chapters in Peace has a title. Uh, this one is called Alden Dennis Weir. Uh, that is a person's name. And of course, right, we don't actually know who that is yet when we're just reading that as the title of the chapter. So let's go inside and find out. And look, we should also say up front too, right, that this is going to be a tricky, tricky book to cover. It, it is a memoir, essentially, and it trickles 
in and out of memories. It's very easy for us, the reader, I think, to lose track of the thread of these memories and forget where we started, like why we're getting this particular anecdote to begin with. But the prose is just beautiful. So we're drawn into this world of memory through the power of the words. And we don't want to lose sight of that as we are going through this. So I actually just want to start by reading the entire first paragraph, really just for the purpose of giving a sense of what this book is like. Also, I think that, you know, we'll be revisiting this paragraph several times as we go. It's an important paragraph. The elm tree planted by Eleanor Bold, the judge's daughter, fell last night. I was asleep and heard nothing, but from the number of shattered limbs and the size of the trunk, there must have been a terrible crashing. I woke, I was sitting up in my bed before the fire, but by the time I was awake, there was nothing to hear but the dripping of the melting snow running from the eaves. I remember that my heart pounded, and I was afraid I was going to have an attack, and then, fuzzily, thought that perhaps the heart attack had wakened me, and then that I might be dead. I try to use the candle as little as I can, but I lit it then and sat up with the blankets around me, enjoying the candlelight and listening to the sound of the dripping snow and to the icicles melting, and it seemed to me that the whole house was melting like the candle, going soft and running down into the lawn. And then we get, after that, we get two more paragraphs before we come to our first section break. So I will just continue, but I'm going to be paraphrasing now. So the, the narrator goes outside to deal with this fallen tree, but all he can do is chop up some of the, the branches that had fallen off into smaller pieces for his fire, because he can no longer use the really big axe that it would take to deal with the trunk of this tree. And the reason he can't use that axe is that he's had a stroke. And this is a real axe that he's thinking about. It's not just the concept of bigger axe that I you know, maybe wish I could use. He's got a real axe there that he could use if he hadn't had the stroke. And that axe is branded with the manufacturer's logo. And it occurs to him that this is where the term brand new comes from. And he's a little surprised that this has only just now occurred to him. And he also laments that he now has no one in his life to share this bit of trivia with. And thinking about trivia, and, and maybe more especially thinking about his love for trivia, he remembers when he was 13 and living with his Aunt Olivia. She used to keep a little ceramic figure of Napoleon on her mantle, and the narrator really liked to impress visitors with his knowledge of why Napoleon always kept one hand in his waistcoat. And he thought that people would think he was really cool for knowing that, but somehow the answer, which, which he does not tell us, he doesn't actually tell us what this answer is, but somehow that answer always offended people. And even after he realized that the answer offended people, he kept doing it as a kind of a psychological experiment. And that brings us to the end of this opening vignette. That was a lot. I, I think there's already a lot to tease out here as well. There's so much in this <laughs> opening section to tease out. It's ridiculous. I'm going to start with these uh, two. I'm going to call them extrapolations that you uh, mentioned that are a big part of this opening sec section about the term brand new, about Napoleon's uh posture about his pose. This is, uh, if you've ever seen the famous Jacques-Louis David painting of Napoleon, this is the basically a little model of that pose, I think, uh, with Napoleon in his hand kind of resting inside of his his waistcoat. And I think that this, extra this extrapolation as explanation or as a mode of explanation is a really big part of how this narrator, who we're going to find out is Den, Dennis Weir, uh, how he goes, how he's sort of prone to thinking this way. His extrapolations may or not be correct. He doesn't really have anyone around to tell him whether or not they're right or wrong. Uh, and he's really bad at picking up social cues, I think, <laughs> as well. Uh, but you just read through two of them. The first extrapolation he really makes, that is to say he has a set of data uh, or information, and then he makes an assumption about what it means. So the first one that he makes is really the opening, is that he assumes, he extrapolates that the tree fell and that there must have been a ter terrible crashing, but he heard nothing. And he wakes up thinking that he's dead and sees the tree in a certain condition. And so he makes assumptions about what has happened, about what it must have sounded like. And so, okay, he's a deep sleeper. And this is actually not a great example of extrapolation as a mode of explanation. <laughs> uh, but, but this section is really caught up with this type of thinking. 
we can also maybe get the sense that uh, for Dennis, uh, for his belief system, that death is not the negation of consciousness that consciousness in his belief system goes on after death if he thinks he's dead but he can still think uh maybe that's a dream state a kind of irrational belief but certainly it's something in his mind this next example of this extrapolation is this phrase brand new this is also wrong uh branding has nothing to do with uh being brand new has nothing to do with branding i should say in this sense this phrase is actually connected to uh an idiom that shakespeare coined a coined phrase from shakespeare that was fire new uh that this was originally brand new also without the d also span new like spick and span all of these are kind of interrelated in some way it really means just something fresh from the fire it's unused um it's not the phrase brand new does not come from something being branded after a final inspection at a manufacturing plant so his etymology is wrong though the kind of instinct of what it means is right. It's fresh from the factory is what we would think of it today. It's fresh from the manufacturing plant. It hasn't been used yet. It's brand new. What uh, what play is that from? The fire new from Shakespeare? Uh, Shakespeare used this phrase in Richard III originally, and then also in Twelfth Night. Okay. Yeah. I thought, you know, certainly this was going to come from either a history play or a tragedy play. I did not really expect that one of the answers was going to be a comedy because, <laughs> you know, this theme seems like this is something that should refer to be refer, referring to weapons, right? And, uh, you know, like a new forged sword or something like that. Yeah, exactly. I mean, the presence of this here is is really to show us Alden Dennis Weir's self-confidence about his ability to extrapolate information. You know, the next one is really this Napoleon thing. And th this Napoleon uh, anecdote interests me on a number of levels. First is the fact that he believes he got the answer to why Napoleon stands with his hand in his waistcoat. As I said, that's from the famous portrait by David uh, from Emile Ludwig's biography of Napoleon. This is kind of an early 20th century biography. Uh, this is part of this whole movement of thinking of history as something that takes place through the work of great men. And this kind of great man theme, I think, is going to show up again. And I have a little bit to say about it when it does in this chapter. But I searched this biography thanks to Google Books. And man, research is so much easier now than <laughs> it would have been. Like if we had done this 20 years ago, I would have had to spend days in a library. But the internet is pretty wonderful. I searched for uh, this reference to the waistcoat or the hand in the waistcoat and all this stuff in uh, Emil Ludwig's biography of Napoleon, and it just simply doesn't exist. So he's also probably conflating some sources, uh, Weir is. Weir might have understood Napoleon to be a person who gets stomach aches, and so that's why he holds his stand on his stomach in these famous poses. But there are a number of other explanations that were out there uh, for a long time, like he had psoriasis, so he was hiding his hands. You know, he got stomach aches. There was some other reason. I think the standard explanation for why he stands like this is that it was a, a pretty standard. It was almost a cliched pose for powerful men at the time. Right. He didn't actually stand that way. No one stood that way except in right. paintings, but everybody stood that way in paintings for like a hundred years. Right. Exactly. <laughs> so like, regardless of the explanation, then, I mean, we get the sense, especially based on Weir's, uh, on the reactions to Weir telling this anecdote to people, that his explanation is almost certainly wrong. Uh, but he just goes on telling it to people. So he's this type of person that really relies on his ability to have this really rational mind. And a lot of this first chapter, I'll say now, reads like a logic puzzle that you'd get, you know, f from like the penny press or something like that. Uh, he's Weir is doing a lot with changing names, describing people in one way, and then anchoring those explanations in something else. So we have Eleanor Bold, the judge's daughter. Well, if we see the judge's daughter again, we now know that refers to Eleanor Bold. And we might see a person described with one name and then another anchor description described as something else. So that's a that's a technical feature of the writing of this story that is kind of rooted in this logical 
I don't know, anchoring of information, but then we're asked to extrapolate as well, the same way Weir is. And so we're kind of brought into this mindset of Alden Dennis Weir in this way. And I think it's important, as you've been pointing out, Brandon, though, I'll, I'll say it with less uh, less detail than, than and rigor than you have, that there are basically here in this opening three assertions that the narrator makes, three things that he's supposing, three suppositions that he's making. Two of them we can demonstrate are not true. <laughs> and one of them we can't demonstrate is true. And I think that's an important tone to be setting at the beginning of this memoir. Yes, and and I will be pointing out other examples where verifiability and falsifiability of the information aren't even something we as readers are capable of at this point in the text, though maybe we need to be paying attention to when those things arise. Uh, But, you know, I'm kind of painting a picture of this story as kind of rational, rigorous, like logical work, and it's not. The prose really just flows so smoothly. The emotions are so uh, deep in the expressiveness of the text, and the language is so expressive as well that this is just kind of a critical reading approach to the story. You could read this and just go with the flow and not be caught up in the rigor that I am because it's my job this week. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I want to also just talk a little bit about the names. I won't be doing this for all the names until I feel like the character presented is uh, 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 meaningful or important in some way to the narrative. Uh, So you'll see, you won't see us do this with all the names as we go through the story until I feel like, hey, whoa, this is a really important part of the narrative. But obviously, the first title of the first chapter is Alden Dennis Weir. And this is, as we said, the name of the narrator. And uh, Alden could mean something like old friend in old English. Uh, Or if we're looking at the Scottish origins, this name has ties. It means like half Dane. Uh, And that variation of the name is found in in Beowulf, as old as Beowulf, referring to the legendary Norse king, Hafton Skilding. So Alden comes from Hafton. And then we have the name Dennis, which could be rooted in the Greek god Dionysius, who was the god of ecstatic states and wine. Uh, This is a famous kind of figure in philology and classical thought, thanks to Nietzsche, who came up with this Dionysian Apollo divide in the creative impulse. Dionysus was kind of like the ecstatic expression of creativity. And Apollo was the order that you bring into that in order to uh, shape it into something accessible, basically for other people. Dionysus was also used in kind of pagan rituals, uh, like William Butler Yeats was into this sort of imagery. Uh, Also, this name Dennis occasionally was used in the past to denote Danish ancestry. It just means the Dane. So we have these two names here, Alden and then Dennis, that could just mean, hey, he's Danish or half Danish. Um, Another reference for Dennis here, thinking along the lines of Dionysius, could refer to pseudo-Dionysius. And I'm I'm, I'm using this because of what we read in a story of John V. Marsh. Um, Pseudo-Dionysius was basically the father of Christian mysticism and uh, really maybe the grandfather of Christian mysticism in the same way that, you know, like Kierkegaard is sometimes referred to as the grandfather of existentialism. Uh, And we saw the influence of Pseudo-Dionysius in John of the Cross and the Carmelite Order, which has come up in a lot of Wolf's fiction, including uh, the death of Dr. Island, when we talked about specifically a story by John V. Marsh. And this refers really to the opposite of the Dionysian ecstatic state. Pseudo-Dionysius really was a proponent of asceticism, uh, of meeting God in moments of total self-negation, of fasting, of darkness. Like God is the God who exists in our self-negation. And you can encounter him in a very real spiritual sense. It's like Julian of Norwich did. So here are these names here. I think Wolf is really kind of maybe leaning more on the Danish stuff for some reason. I don't know. That's just my gut right now. But these other meanings are present. And weir is just this old English word to refer to man. And so this is also why I think maybe Danish 
thinking of Alden as uh, a kind of Danish man, if we're going to consider that that's the case, this sense where his name essentially just means half Dane, Danish man, has this more archetypal sense to it. It could be evoking something more mystical, you know, in a pagan or mythical tradition, could be connected with Norse mythology as well. But, uh, you know, it also kind of brings in the sense of this is just like this this person representing maybe a, a nationalism in an archetypal sense or wishes to uh, embody certain stereotypes of that uh, national archety- archetype, whatever it is. But, you know, it could also just be a name. I don't know. Well, we do definitely know that that that, that is never the case with Gene Wolfe, that, that Wolfe never once just randomly flipped through like a baby name dictionary and just picked something and said, that'll do like that is that's never <laughs> happened. So we will want to we will want to talk more about what these names mean. One thing we should probably just say up front is this story is not taking place in Denmark. Uh, you know, we don't really know specifically where yet. We're going to find out pretty soon. But, you know, it's America. It's not it's not Denmark. I want to say one other thing about the, the name as well. And I may have just misheard you. You, Brandon, but when you were talking about Half Dane and uh, saying that that's from Beowulf, which it, it is, it's from other places as well, but it isn't Beowulf, I thought that you might have said that that was Scottish. Uh, but I, I want to correct you there and just say that, that no, that's Old English as well. That's also Anglo Saxon, uh, just as Eldwine is Anglo Saxon as, as well. But it is in particular use in the 9th and 10th centuries in what we would call the Dane law, which is to say northern and, and maybe really especially uh, northeastern England, the area that is ruled by by Danes, by, by Danish Vikings, essentially, that also includes the southern part of Scotland. And so there's a particular dialect in what is today the southern part of Scotland, a uh, particular dialect of English, but it is actually just a dialect of English and is not a, a Celtic language in any way. So that can be very confusing, but it, they're both old English. Yeah, that's fair enough. I probably uh, I probably did not just uh, write my notes carefully enough. And 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 as we're talking, you know, Shakespeare here and uh, Danish man, which is what yeah. Alton Dennis Weir could mean. Hamlet, you know. Now we're thinking old Hamlet here. So, right. <laughs> you know, maybe Hamlet didn't die when we thought he died. <laughs> yeah, right. Hamlet actually died from a heart attack uh, caused by not hearing a tree fall while he was asleep. <laughs> Right, exactly. <laughs> that was the first draft, and <laughs> fortunately, somebody said, "Yeah, that's that's not that. No one's going to watch that play." <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Well, let's uh, let's continue. We're going to break the the next segment into some smaller, more manageable chunks here. And and first, we we get a, a bit more about the narrator's life and. We are in just a page or two going to actually learn, you know, that that this name Alden Dennis Weir does apply to him. And he has had a stroke. He he lives alone. He goes back and forth on whether or not walking is good or bad for him. And so he wants to consult a doctor. And here's what he says about that. There is this to be said for doctors. They may be consulted, though dead. And I consult doctors Black and Van Ness. I consult Dr. Black as a boy, though with a stroke but Dr. Van Ness as a man. And then we're in the office of Dr. Van Ness in the Cassonsville and Kankasee Valley Bank building where patients are waiting and reading magazines. When the narrator meets the doctor, he explains that he is living at a time when Dr. Van Ness and all the others are dead and that he has had a stroke and he needs his help. And Dr. Van Ness here addresses him as Mr. Weir, finally, where this is the moment where we get his name. And then he asks how old he is. And Weir gives his best guess. And I think it's important that maybe he is not actually sure how old he is. And the doctor looks in his file folder and tells Weir his birthday, which is May. And that information transports us to another... Well, at this point, I think that's the question, right? Does it transport Weir to another memory or another time what 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 is going on here brandon i think the key to understanding this is that line that you read the doctors may be consulted though dead and he thinks of consulting you know dr black as a boy and van ness dr van ness as a man and so what's happening is we're we're getting this story really moving through different levels of memory and really it's a kind of association game. Certain things set the memory of Alden Weir off in certain directions. And as far as I can tell, uh, in this first chapter, 
apart from the times where he's drawn out of being in the doctor's office, he's in his house. Um, but he's always in his house as kind of the primary level of his mental state. Like physically, we're meant to understand that he's in his house. Then the next level is he's in the doctor's office. And then the next level is these memories of when he's five and six years old. So like physically he's in one place, but uh, we'll see a line later on where the doctor asks him if it's difficult to move around. And he says, emotionally it is physically it's not. And I think that emotional movement is primarily the mode in which this story is written. And one way I get this hint, the way that this works is on page 13 of the text right after Alden Weir is asked, how old are you? He says, I tell him my best guess. Then this paragraph is written or given to us. His mouth makes a tiny noise and he opens the file folder he carries and tells me my birthday. It is in May and there is a party ostensibly for me in the garden. I am five. The garden is the side yard behind the big hedge. So what we have is that movement, like, and, and we'll see those movements happen a lot throughout the story where one sentence, it's my birthday. I am told my birthday. Now I'm at this place where I'm having a memory about my birthday. So it's an associative memory and it's really a stream of consciousness style narrative. It's in that Proustian style of the associative stream of consciousness, really. And one thing reminds the narrator of another thing and then another. And then we're falling down this narrative rabbit hole as the narrator's thoughts really get away from him. And then he tries to hold on to them and you know, basically, in the words of Samuel Jackson's Jurassic Park character, Ray R. Arnold, uh, hold on to your butts, because that's, <laughs> that's what we've got to do in this narrative. It's, you know, if we see, we have visual language for this now, thanks to like Inception, basically. But we're really just moving through these layers of memory. I'm going to hold out a healthy dose of skepticism there, right? Gene Wolfe is a speculative fiction writer. So far, you know, four pages into this story, we have not had a real speculative element to this story, though that's not atypical of, of Gene Wolfe, of course. But I'm going to hold out some, uh, I'm going to hold out here and be remain skeptical that we might actually be, we're, I should say, might actually be transporting his mind backwards in time into previous versions of his body, which seems to be suggested here, not suggested, it's hinted at here that maybe that's what's going on. I'm going to, I'm going to keep looking for that. Even though you have, I think already written that off. Yes. I'm going to argue with you about that. Uh, every step of the way, I'm going to, we're going <laughs> to fight tooth and nail for our readings of this story as we occasionally do. There's some other things about this section. I just want to point out one is uh, on page 11, and this is just some really striking imagery that feels very out of place in the story. It is winter. All the plants are in their kind of winter hibernation. And Wolf describes the roses this way. He says, some of the roses still show, like mothers holding up their dead infants, the softly rotten shoots they put forth in the last warm weather of the fall. Now, this is one of many images we are going to see in this first chapter about the relationship between mothers and children, the uh, like dead children, dead infants. And so that's like really dark. That's a very dark way to describe a, a rose garden in winter. And I don't know why this is on Weir's mind, but it can kind of continues to be a through line uh, throughout this chapter. We also, for the first time, see a concern about getting exercise in this section. Uh, that's going to come up again and again as well. And with this doctor visit, right, with do visiting Dr. Van Ness, the phrase used is a, is a consultation. But then just before he's going to consult with Dr. Van Ness, uh, which is a typical word used to seeing a doctor, we're, we're told that he's visiting them though they're dead. And this is like a consultation with the dead. And so this feels like he like he's a medium in some sense. And I think that maybe goes to your reading of this story here, this sense that he is actually transporting his mind or some other mind is visiting him. And so there's this sense of the mystical element or the speculative element breaking through into the reality of the story. He visits the doctors of the past in his mind, and it seems as though he's really there. I'll also point out here that Cashinsville is the place where Wolf has set what we thought of as an autobiograph 
autobiographical story about his conversion to Catholicism, the changeling. And lastly here, Van Ness here is a Dutch name. It means headland or something along those lines. Yeah, one more name that we should point out here as well is Dr. Black, because we have met a Dr. Black in a Gene Wolfe story before. We've we've had a Dr. Black in The Island of Dr. Death and other stories. And uh, I, I'm not going to assert that they are the same the same character, <laughs> but you know it's impossible for me to see Dr. Black appear on the page of something Gene Wolfe wrote and not think back to that Dr. Black. So we might want to keep yeah. our eye on that as well as we go. Right. They're certainly described very differently. I mean, this Dr. Black is, I don't know, obese, if not just very overweight. So I don't think that was our other Dr. Black. But yeah, uh, yeah, that's absolutely the case. That's here. And it's, uh, I don't know, a little jarring to meet Dr. Black in a real story or a story that seems grounded in a different kind of reality. The last thing I want to point out about this section that you just went through, Glenn, is in the waiting room, Weir is waiting with like five other people, and clearly they're all people from his past. We're not going to go through that right now because they're not important to the narrative just yet. And they're all reading different magazines. And this is another like example of that Penny Magazine <laughs> logic puzzle. It's like four pe- there were two copies of Life. Two people read Life. That means there are three other magazines and three other people. And which, you know, and you could imagine like putting the dots and X's in there to try to figure out who's reading what, <laughs> uh, if it really matters. But what, what I do want to point out about this scene is that what the narrator is listening to in this reverie, as I'll call it, is uh, a Russian opera called The Life of the Tsar by Glinka. This is about the founding of the Romanov dynasty. And I think what's important about the presence of this here is the fact that as Weir is writing this memoir or thinking through his life here, however, we're going to approach this text as an artifact. Um, he's got these representations of great men on his mind, both Napoleon and the Romanov family history here, which can really both be thought of as tragedies in the classical sense of the high being brought low. And so I really wonder if we're being clued into thinking that this story is going to be a tragedy of a kind. We have the sense that we are as isolated here. He's alone in his house during winter. So maybe we're beginning to get those ingredients in the story as well. This kind of everyman tragedy that Arthur Miller really presented in Death of a Salesman. This is a pretty deep cut in in terms of of classical music, in terms of opera here, to invoke Glinka. Do you even know Glinka? Have you listened to Glinka before? Just this week, I have listened to Glinka, and uh, for so like it's weird. So I listened to it on Spotify, and it kept on like cutting out and skipping tracks. And I'm like, is this haunted? Like, what is going oh, yeah. on here? <laughs> like, why does it keep doing that? This is a digital file that should just do, like play in order. So I had a really strange experience trying to listen to it this week. It's a nice opera, it's very pretty. I really like Russian classical music uh, in a lot of ways. But yeah, I mean, I don't know anything about the opera besides its reference here that it's about the Romanovs and there are some very nice choral pieces in in the opera itself. Yeah, I hadn't really listened to much Glinka before either. I'm a real big classical music buff though. And so I enjoyed also just having this on kind of constantly, incessantly really as I was prepping for the episodes. And I'm actually kind of happy to, to have it in the rotation now. I was actually really quite impressed. And yeah, I think People have heard me talk about Rachmaninoff quite a bit before in various capacities. I like Russian classical music. And uh, so uh, thanks. Thanks for the tip, Gene Wolfe. Well, let's uh, let's go to the next memory here, which, which happens pretty quickly, right? We're with Weir when he's five. It's this birthday party that uh, we get alerted to. So it's May. And we get a great line here, by the way, about how spring in the Midwest sometimes only lasts a week. And as a Midwesterner, forcibly, I will say forcibly living in a much warmer climate, uh, this line filled me with nostalgia. Uh, I never even knew what spring was until I moved first uh, to Tennessee and then to the the Mid-Atlantic where I live now. And uh, it turns out that the the weather I associate with spring is actually what most Americans experience as uh, as winter. And I think that you're getting your taste of that right now, Brandon, of like actual winter. <laughs> yeah, it's been snowing nonstop for a whole week. It's two below zero today. And uh, I'm going to have to go out and get some provisions when we wrap up <laughs> recording. So, uh, I want yeah. that so bad. I want that weather so bad. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, that uh, that digression aside, uh, we get a description of this birthday party. But Weir is mostly, and, and, and perhaps even strangely, I think, uh, interested in the adults here. And one 
of these is his aunt Olivia. He's already mentioned her. She's the one with the Napoleon statue. And then there are Mrs. Black and Miss Bold. Uh, They're sisters. Mrs. Black is the wife of Dr. Black. And Miss Bold is Eleanor Bold, the judge's daughter, whose elm tree has been the inciting incident of this book. And the party is taking place at Weir's house, which is a pretty large house. It's got a large yard as well. And we're getting the sense at this point that Weir is from a fairly wealthy family and that their family friends are really the elite of Cassonsville and the, the surrounding area here. Weir really, though, he focuses on one particular element of his childhood home, this house here, and that is a portrait of a four-year-old boy that is in a cool room at the top of the house. Uh, And the, the portrait is on the floor. It's leaning against a wall. The boy is Joe. And he is the brother of Weir's father, so Weir's uncle, although that's not actually a phrase that he ever uses. It's always the brother of his father. Uh, But Weir has never met Joe because Joe died a year after this portrait was painted, when he was five or uh, around five anyway, uh, which is the age that Weir himself is turning this day. And at this point, we get three dense pages describing and, and I think musing really about this painting. Joe is in a Tuscan garden, though Weir tells us that when he hadn't seen this painting in a long time, his memory of the the setting, like of the background where this this figure is, was way more fantastical. Uh, It was like something out of a fairy tale by Andrew Lang or George MacDonald. And Joe is also holding a little toy gun. He has a a wooden dog with him, right? These are his, his toys he's got with him in this portrait. But really... Weir is musing about the garden in this painting, which he thinks is the core and root of the real world, and that what we imagine as the real world is only a miniature in a locket in a forgotten drawer. And here also he thinks about the cosmology of Dante's Paradiso, and I I think this bit of the text is is worth reading. Uh, In fact, I'm I'm going to read this bit, and then I'm going to read another bit right after it, because it's important and it's beautiful, but there's going to be a big chunk of text here. So he's thinking about Dante's cosmology. Here's what he says. In which the earth stood physically central, surrounded by the limbus of the moon and all the other spheres, greater and greater, and at last by God, but in which this physical reality was, in the end, delusive, God standing central in spiritual truth, and our poor earth cast out, peripheral to the concerns of heaven, save when the memory of it waked, with something not unlike an impure nostalgia, the great saints and the Christ from the contemplation of triune God. So that's some pretty serious business there. And he follows this up with true, all true. Why do we love this forlorn land at the edge of everywhere? And there's going to be a lot to talk about there, but I don't actually want to pause and contemplate that just yet because I want to read part of the next paragraph. Then we'll be at the section break and then we can take a very deep breath and, uh, I don't know, find something to bicker about, Brandon. So uh, I'm going to do some alighting here. I'm going to cut out some some relative clauses from what I'm uh, about to read. Sitting before my little fire, I know that this planet of America, turning round upon itself, stands only at the outside only at the periphery, only at the edges of an infinite galaxy, dizzily circling, and that the stars that seem to ride our winds cause them. So there's some absolutely beautiful imagery happening in that paragraph, but also some serious contemplation about our place in the universe, all of which is spurred by the memory of a portrait of a child who died. Right. And uh, boy, as much as I'd love to take 20 minutes to talk about that now, we are not going to. Uh, this this is going to be uh, a feature of our discussion. Yeah. There are many references to, I think it's best to call it like Weir's America. And we're going to be thinking through that because it shows up time and again in this chapter in particular uh, about what am like why have these thoughts this is about america specifically and metaphysics and cosmology um and it, it's going to be important for us to encounter the way weir and maybe wolf thinks about the place of america in the world and the place of america in america's minds what we would call like the imaginative landscape or our place in a strange cosmology, perhaps of American exceptionalism. And I think uh, that's going to be fun to talk about, but I don't think it has a place here as we're trying, as we're moving through the the narrative of the story. Um, it's really much more of a discussion topic to dig into. 
There are a few things, though, in this section that are important to the story, as it turns out. <laughs> uh, some some references here. I want to start with the first one, which is this: uh, what what the boy Joe is wearing. Uh, his pants are described as being. Zouave in style. And the Zouave were a light infantry unit fighting primarily in North Africa. They were founded in 1831. So this is post Napoleon uh, the, the first. They played a role, I found out, in the American Civil War as well. The Zouave units were kind of hired to fight on both the Union and the Confederacy sides of the war, though many more Zouave uh, units fought for the Union. And their last iteration as a unit, their final iteration, which I think they were disbanded in the 1960s, but this is still the 19th century uh, where this version of the unit formed, they were linked to battles in Tunisia. And I, I was looking for this connection, I suppose, because we've seen an odd reference to Tunisian brothels in this section already. And this is a weird instance where, as we see with the description of the wind and the stars and cause and effect of something we think causes something is really the effect of some other cause, that this is kind of happening perhaps in the thought of the narrator. Now, I could just be reading too deeply into this, but it seems as though he's already thinking about this Zouave style of the uncle, his uncle, who he never met. Uh, I have an uncle like that as well. I think it's a kind of maybe perhaps a feature of uh, of families, uh, maybe in our generation, maybe in all generations, and that he's already thinking about this, which is why he makes this reference to the the curtains in a Tunisian brothel. And so him thinking about his this painting though it's not stated yet causes him to think about tunis in some way maybe i'm reading way too much into that but that's that combined with this phrase about the the stars and the wind and the, the misunderstanding of cause and effect seem to kind of suggest the way the prose is working in this story did that make sense to you, Glenn? <laughs> Maybe that <laughs> to our audience as well. <laughs> well, it does make sense to me. There's a lot going on here in the imagery, just some really some connections that I think are, I don't know, they might not be important, but I think that they're worth pointing out. A, a lot of the images that are here wrapped up in the way that he's describing, the way that he's thinking about this painting are things that appear in the fifth head of Cerberus as well. And, you know, in our introduction to this episode and really, the, you know, introduction to our treatment of the novel, I, I made sure to point out the the real close proximity, actually, to the writing of the fifth head of Cerberus and this book as well, even though their their publication is separated by three years and, and then also like, I don't know, 80 episodes of our podcast, right? And so I want us to be thinking back to 1972, to the fifth head of Cerberus a lot as we're covering peace. And there's a lot of that material here. And this Tunisian brothel is one of them. We might not make that as a connection to the fact that the fifth head of Cerberus takes place in a brothel or, you know, largely in a brothel if we don't, if we didn't have some other connections to the fifth head of Cerberus in this passage as well. But we've got Lombard poplars invoked here, right? They're in the background of this painting and Lombard poplars are, and Lombard poplars are a really big part of the, the imagery that is used actually to describe the sex slaves in the brothel in the fifth head of Cerberus, where uh, Lombard poplars are used as a simile for the legs of those women in that Proustian memoir as well. And of course, all of this business about Dante's cosmology is something that we've talked about before when we did a story by John V. Marsh, right? The, the middle novella of the fifth head of Cerberus. And there's imagery here that that ties directly into the imagery that we get there. In that case, it's about stars. So it's very interesting even just to see how that invocation, I think, of a brothel relates to all of these ideas and all of these images that are on and in Wolf's mind at this point. Yeah, that that's certainly true. I mean, this text is so rich by itself. I mean, not only are these uh, novels separated by years in terms of publication, but also by publishing categories as well, which is, uh, I don't know, something worth thinking about. 
Wolf also has a very wolfy description here uh, of Aunt Olivia, which who he describes as having violet eyes and, and black hair. And I mean, violet eyes and dark hair, as I said, are a thing for wolf. <laughs> uh, I don't think violet eyes are real. I did a lot of research on this and, and kind of went down some rabbit holes. There was like an internet myth about this, um, this like violet eyes, meaning like perfection and humanity. And I thought, oh, that's really cool. But that internet myth started in like 2005 though it referenced a text from the 14th century that doesn't exist so it was like totally a <laughs> fake internet meme and I, I spent a lot of time like trying to make sure that it was fake um but i think then the reference here as we see it for the first time in this story we'll see it later in the book of the new sun i think this is like elizabeth taylor in her prime <laughs> that's my sense like elizabeth <laughs> taylor playing Cleopatra here that th this is like an ideal woman sort of for Wolf perhaps and the description of Aunt Olivia is really like the description of the upper class in um, the Book of the New Sun as well so I think this is kind of a recurring image in Wolf this is the first time I think we've seen it turn up in uh, as a description though I, I could be wrong about that as well I just wanted to point that out um, I should also point out here that uh, Weir also sees his grandmother's ghost who talks to the housemaid, Hannah. Uh, and then there's this spiritualism society. And we've talked about spiritualism in the late 19th and early 20th centuries as a major fad of the kind of middle class and upper class in um, Europe and America. So like this small town has a spiritualist society. Maybe that wouldn't be so strange to see in a memoir, but the fact that the narrator sees his grandmother's ghost here is a little strange, a little indicative of maybe we're dealing with the fantastic in some very real way in this story. I also want to point out the incredible descriptive prose. I'm not going to read any of it of the portrait of Joe. What really jumps out to me about this description is that the portrait is referred to as a he. And so this portrait is really a kind of a symbol, again, of the the dead uncle of child death. Joe, Uncle Joe, is forever frozen in this moment. And as much as memories can be alive, can be things that animate us or uh, we animate them, there's a this is the relationship through memory, but also mediated in, in a kind of reality that the narrator has with his uncle. I guess what I'm saying is here, this portrait description is fantastic, but it is alive. It is not describing a portrait. It is describing the relationship that Weir has with his uncle. And so it's a very real relationship. And there's also a sense memory aspect to this. There's these rotten apple cores that are either there hypothetically or they're cast backwards and forwards in time. It's very strange. We don't really know the events surrounding them, but something having to do with these rotting apples uh, and this battle, the standoff that the narrator has with Bobby Black at his fifth birthday party, where he's trying to pr protect the portrait. Maybe Bobby Black wants to throw these apples at it and, and destroy it for some reason, maybe just out of spite or cruelty. Um, but they have a standoff. And at the top of the stairs, the section break ends with them swaying. And uh, I wonder if they fall, that uh, we get nothing else beyond that at this point in the narrative. I really like that you're pointing out the way that the the physical portrait, that the, like the actual painting on canvas and in this wooden frame, is kind of a stand-in for the person. I assume that that's how Weir's father speaks about this portrait, but it might also even just be how Weir thinks about this portrait. He knows he has this uncle, this uncle who is dead, who he's never going to meet in real life. But kids at, at this age, right, this is his fifth birthday party, really want to know who is in their family, who are all these people. And even when there is someone who is dead, and in this case, an, an, an uncle, but this could also be grandparents and that sort of thing, want to see pictures of them want to know things about them. And the objects will often take on, you know, become kind of totems, I guess, for that actual person. And Wolf conveys all of that to us here just with a simple pronoun, essentially. Yeah, it's 
absolutely uh, transcendent, I think, as a, as a technical choice. There's uh, one more thing I want to point out in all of this business about the portrait before we go on. And of course, you know, as you said, Brandon, I don't know, we're going to spend like two to three hours unpacking all the cosmology stuff in the discussion <laughs> episode. We're just totally dancing around here in this episode. But one more image I want to point out here is just to go back to this business with the the fairies, uh, the fairy tales, uh, this garden from a fairy tale that he right. invokes here, right? Is very specific about who he invokes. And these are George MacDonald, uh, who that matters. But what I really want to focus on here is Andrew Lang, because he says Andrew Lang, and then in parentheses says, particularly those of the green fairy book, as opposed to the blue or the red fairy book, or I think there was also a yellow fairy book that came out. There after are the about green 14 one. colors <laughs> of fairy books, according to Wikipedia. Right. So. <laughs> so this is extraordinarily precise, right? And Wolf, the fact that Wolf puts this then in parentheses, I think really calls attention to it. I, right now, do not know why it matters that it's the green fairy book and not the blue fairy book or the red fairy book. I have read some of these a little bit. I had maybe kind of a condensed version of these when I was a kid, but uh, I now have a brand new copy. Uh, it's not branded, but it is brand new. <laughs> and I have a, a brand new copy of the, the green fairy book that uh, I am now reading to my son at nap time. I will probably finish doing that by about the time that we're done with the novel. So perhaps I will have an answer at that point. Well, we'll see. We'll see it come up uh, in the next episode or two again, though. This is the only title reference we get to a, another really totem, it seems, of Weir's childhood. Uh, both Andrew Lang and George McDonald, I think, were fabulous. George McDonald is now most remembered, I think, for being a big influence on C.S. Lewis. Uh, but I cannot recommend, you know, like The Princess and the Goblin enough if you need like a novel for a child. It's very allegorical. Uh, George MacDonald was a, a Presbyterian. He was Scottish, uh, but he was a big believer in fairy tales and his belief in fairy tales as being an important mode of storytelling, not just for children, but also for adults, I think has influenced both C.S. Lewis and uh, Gene Wolfe in some way. Uh, but yeah, Princess and the Goblin is great. He also wrote a book called uh, Fantasties, which is is just a, another wonderful novel. Um, but I think that uh, Wolf or Weir has in mind here the kind of children's fantasy adventures. There's another one called uh, like having to do with the West Wind and these two kids uh, that, that I think are featured in The Princess and the Goblin go on to have more adventures uh, in child novels. And they're they're wonderful. Yeah, I should really probably do just like a, a bonus series on on ATOS where I read those just to, to you know, in the in case they become important to really have under our belt here. <laughs> well, I've got I've got three of them under my belt, uh, but the but not the child ones, just the princess and the goblin. Um, but I've also read Lilith and and Fantasties as okay. well. I the only one I've got on the shelf is News from Nowhere, uh, which I don't know that that's gonna be relevant here. I, I don't either. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well let, let's go to a, a news section. It is a new section, uh, but I, I think that we are still at Weir's fifth birthday party, though, you know, that's not always uh, completely clear. Uh, the women are sitting together outside. They are pretending to be Native Americans. Uh, Indians is the word in the in the text. Uh, and they've got names like White Fawn and Star Behind Sun, and they're going to paint a deerskin. But the bulk of this part of the memory is really of the family servant, Hannah, who was washing dishes in the kitchen. Weir is there in the kitchen with her, and Hannah is remembering her own childhood home, which was a, a small cabin near a creek that has now collapsed. Hannah is old. She knew Weir's mother when she herself was five, and we get the impression that Hannah has been the servant in this big house for most of her adult life. And she talks about how funny it would be if she and Weir, a, a little boy here, uh, she calls him Denny, uh, how funny it would be if she and Denny switched places. He could wash the dishes while she plays tag outside with the other kids. And Weir comes out of this memory to think about his own house. Uh, as an old man, he doesn't live in his childhood home uh, anymore. There's this home that his parents had inherited from his own grandmother. Instead, he lives in a house that he's had constructed, a, a large house, even larger than his childhood home. And his house has a dishwasher. And he's, he's never seen anyone wash dishes by hand in his kitchen the way that Hannah used to do in his childhood home. And he also has so many rooms in his house that he 
can't actually remember what is in all of them. Uh, and now, since he's had this stroke, he, he just lives in a living room at the south end of the house because it is the only room with a fireplace. At least he thinks it's the only room with a fireplace because he admits that it's possible, given how big the house is, that he's just forgotten about another one that might exist in another room somewhere. Yeah, it's it's very strange. He doesn't even have like a bedroom. His bed isn't really a bed. Uh, he lives in front of the fire. There's so much fire imagery in this story through candles, through uh, the fireplace, all this stuff. Fire is a returning image. Um, and there's other kind of imagery as well. Like Olivia's cigarette holder is called, they call it the tooth of the devil. It's probably just a long ivory filter. Um, but we'll see some other devil imagery show up as well. And, you know, as he's writing this, as he's thinking about fifth out of Cerberus, Hey, maybe this is a hell, another hell novel. <laughs> So it's not clear that that's the case just yet, if it is. Um, but there's certainly enough to suggest, even by the time we get to the end of the first chapter, that, you know, there are some question marks about what kind of story this is. This business with the fire and then really maybe the fireplace in this room, I think, is actually incredibly important for us figuring out who Weir is and what's going on with him at this moment. We have all of these indications of of wealth, of, of family wealth. Right, His parents have wealth. They've got this large house. They have a servant. He is living in an even larger house at this point. It's a house that he had constructed, uh, that he had built to his specifications, and he's got a dishwasher. We will eventually, probably in one of the episodes, maybe it'll be the discussion episode for this chapter, want to actually stop and see if we can suss out when precisely this story is taking place. But I will say here that dishwasher at this moment in time, you know, dishwashers, I think for new construction in the United States, and I think really even most places in Europe are, are going to be fairly standard. But at the point of this story, at the point of Weir's narration, having a dishwasher, mechanical electric dishwasher is a sign of wealth. Yet, this house that has a dishwasher must also certainly have some kind of centralized heating, like a forced air heating system as well, but he's not using it. He's using the fireplace. Even though he's had a stroke and can't use the big axe, he's going out and taking advantage of this fallen tree to get firewood. And he tells us, you know, the very opening, the very first page of the story, that he's trying to conserve his candles as well. So something seems to be up with the money. Absolutely. He's also got a garbage disposal, it sounds like as well, <laughs> um, which is also, I mean, a sign of wealth, right? He can right. put, they can, his, his people can scrap the excess food down the sink and chop it up in the garbage disposal. You know, it's not, he has, he's, he's, he's got excess, you know, excess wealth, excess food. Uh, he's, he's in good shape yet. He's not using electricity. He's relying on fire heat. He's chopping his own wood. Uh, though he talks about having servants. It's all very, uh, strange. It's it causes some cognitive dissonance when you stop to think about it. So I'm glad you, you pointed that out. Uh, I want to point out more about what's going on in this section too. There's all this stuff about Indian princesses. Uh, and this is interesting, again, for that kind of logic puzzle type quality of the writing of this story. At this point, though, it really points out that there are multiple identities for the same person. And they kind of play these different little roles when they're these women at the birthday party are preparing for a powwow or something like that. And, uh, you know, for the local kids and are kind of playing these parts, thinking about how to use the deer pelt, what is authentic, what's not, how they can explain it away. But they all have different names for the same people. And we saw that earlier with the way women take their husband's names in marriage and how that may be. Uh, imparts or really imputes upon them a new identity. And this is a kind of classical question in philosophy of identity. Uh, this is usually represented as the question of, you know, are Venus and the morning star really the same thing? We have different names for them. Does that actually make them different things? And that sort of thing is all over this first chapter. I pointed out Mary names in Maiden names, there's nicknames, as we'll see, and full names, and the way people refer to one another in these means different types of relationships that they have with people. And I think that Wolf is again alerting us to the fact that we need to pay attention to single identities 
that carry multiple names, which means multiple connotations. And I'm not sure, honestly, what he's doing with it yet, but it seems too deliberate to ignore at this point in the story. There are a few more things I want to say here, uh, which is to point out that there is some real estrangement uh, in the way that the prose is written here between Weir and his father. Weir refers to his mother talking to her husband, not to his father. To me, that's an estranging type of construction. Um, And then with regards to Hannah, whose name means favor or grace, it's it's a Hebrew name. Hannah is talking a lot about the house that she used to belong to. We should say that the wealth the, that is represented in the house and the presence of Hannah uh, for young Weir, uh, that his parents seem to have, seems to be inherited wealth from uh, his father's side of the family, his grandmother on his father's side. But Hannah's really talking about that even though a physical structure is gone, even though the place is changed of her old house, this old mill, which has a a number of different names, Sugar Creek, but also the name of a mill. Um, We still inhabit that place in some sense by our memories. And so what's happening here is we're kind of learning how to read the book, how to read this narrative about the way that memories inhabit place and the way that we can return to those places, though they may no longer be there through these sort of, uh, I don't know, monologues asides by these other characters. Another thing that Hannah points out here is a line about a girl that her, that Weir's father used to play with. That's just kind of mentioned and then thrown away. This is something that I would have ignored if it wasn't a wolf story that like Wolf has trained me to pay attention to. I don't know if it's going to pay, pay off, but it's so the way it's embedded in the text makes me think that this, I don't know, this friendship either has some kind of archetypal meaning or it's going to come back in some way in the story. Right. I mean, I'm sure that by the end of the novel, we're going to be arguing about whether or not that person was uh, an alien or a human. <laughs> <laughs> or Jesus or Mary. <laughs> Correct. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, we are coming to the end of what we're going to cover today. We've actually got three short sections here. And in them, we, we get the memories that we've already encountered crashing into each other. They're blending a bit here. So we start back in Dr. Van Ness's office where Weir is being examined. He's asking the doctor whether he should exercise or not since he's had this stroke. But of course, he hasn't actually had a stroke at this point in time, and the doctor does not want to talk about a non-existent ailment. And Weir is really cranky about this, and in his rant, we, we learn a few things. We learn that he used to work in a lab, but now he doesn't. He just works in an office. And we learned that Dr. Black, his childhood doctor, uh, Dr. Black was quite fat. And so was his wife, Barbara, whom we we met in the the birthday party memory. And at this point, the party actually comes back. It's the the women talking about painting the deerskin again. But Weir doesn't want that memory. And he addresses the women and tells them that he's trying to get help from the doctor. And then he's back with Dr. Van Ness, who does now agree to talk with him about a future stroke if Weir in turn agrees to take a test for him. And we'll get that test actually in eh, two more episodes. But here, Weir explains that he hasn't had the stroke now, but he will have had it in the future, but he doesn't know how old he is when that happens or when that is going to will have had happened or something like that, right? (laughs) So the doctor asks some questions about his body at that time and deduces that he's around 60 or so when he has the, the stroke. And Weir says that he doesn't find it physically painful to to move about. You brought this up earlier, Brandon. He doesn't find it physically painful to move about, just emotionally painful because of the things that he sees. And the doctor tells him that he needs to get outside, he needs to exercise, and he needs to talk with people. And he suggests working in his garden, like pulling weeds as, as a way to get started with exercise. And that's a section break. And so that is where we are going to leave things today. That is the section break. Pulling weeds or something is the way the <laughs> section ends. Uh, one thing I really need to point out about the ending here, this last bit where we're going to close out today, is that he says, uh, Weir says that he woke up like this with this kind of emotional pain, these kind of haunted by memories in some sense, his visiting the doctor in the past when he knows the future after Sherry Gold died. But Sherry Gold is in the next room of 
the uh, of the doctor's office, and so that's that's weird, right? I mean, he he's also like imagining Sherry Gold when she's like younger, like a teenager. So it's clear this Sherry Gold relationship is really important in some sense, and perhaps he's imagining these people in the in the office waiting room, in the doctor's office, in the psychic visit as their idealized form. So. Weir is imagining himself as a middle-aged man of indeterminate age. Maybe he's about 15 years off from his stroke, so he's got 15 years to look forward to. And he's imagining some girl that he knew, and he wants to peep on her because she's in her underwear. It's very creepy and unsettling. And it also means we have to look out for the narrator's relationship with Sherry Gold throughout this narrative. But we can be certain that involves some sort of sexual desire. And this is also alerted to us. We're also alerted to this because the doctor asks, and remember, Weir is just imagining this doctor's visit, at least in my reading. Um, the doctor asks if he still has sexual desire. And this is connected with this Sherry Gold business. And it's also connected with the knife. He realizes he doesn't have his knife with him because he can't cut a hole in the partition between the rooms in the doctor's office and, and, and use it as a, as a peephole to spy on Sherry Gold, who also seems to have something she wants to communicate to him, but they're interrupted by. So this is, I'm describing this in a very uh, maybe confusing way, but it's also very confusing in the text here, I think. And while he's in this doctor's office, he keeps returning to this birthday party when he's five. And as I said, this is interrupted by a need to find the knife because his exercise requires a knife for some reason. And that's also disconcerting. He says, I need to find my knife so I can exercise. Uh, you know, and, and here I'm going to talk about the afterword a little bit. I mean, Neil Gaiman has famously said that he read this novel first as a quiet Midwestern memoir, a sweet and gentle pastoral. But I mean, in reading this now, uh, even in the first 20 pages, it's just full of really disturbing stuff. Uh, I have one more thing to say here about this section is that Weir talks about how he feels like his left leg and arm have been broken. Maybe he has a limp. This could be a result of the stroke. But this broken leg or limp is something that features a lot in Wolf's stories and novels. Maybe it has something to do with uh, like a kind of moral impurity or a sin or something like that, uh, more broadly speaking. But I'm also wondering if it if, if he fell down the stairs with Bobby Black as a kid and his leg never healed. So to really sum up this first episode, we've got a guy who is traveling through his memories in this section, primarily between his doctor's office and his birthday party as a five-year-old. He's an isolated man. He needs his knife to exercise. What he really needs is exercise and community. Uh, and he's just not well. Though The knife will take us to different places in the narrator's memory in our next episode. So that is going to do it for this episode. I'm Brandon Buddha. And I'm Glenn McDorman. And there is a lot to talk about, even in just these first 15 pages here. Uh, some arguments that we've already started staking out territory <laughs> in, uh, which is fantastic. So we hope you'll join us in conversation about this section of peace on our forum or on our, our subreddit. Next time, we're going to read pages 26 to 42 in this Orb 2012 edition. And until then... We greet you and say farewell.